Thank you, Anessa. I'm glad you made it back, so we all got to be blessed by that. So before uh, I get to the message, you may notice in your bulletins that there's no indication of where I'm preaching from. Uh, that's not Norma's fault, that's my fault, uh, because I'm very bad at getting the information to Norma, and pretty much every time I give a message, I forget to give it to her. So, because I'm preaching for three consecutive weeks, I looked around for a book that has three chapters, and I settled on the book of Habakkuk. So we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk for this week, next week, and the final week, and prayers for me would be appreciated, one, because I am preaching the word of God, uh, and it is very, very important that I preach it correctly. Uh, it, is, it is somewhat terrifying to stand up in front of a congregation and preach God's word, knowing that false teaching is highly condemned in scripture. But also, between this Sunday and next Sunday, uh, I will be heading up to Word of Life with my family, and hopefully we won't have the same mechanical problems as the Williams did. Uh, so I'll be preparing my message up in New York, getting back on Friday, and then uh, giving the message on Sunday. And then the week after that, uh, my wife and I are going to be moving out of our apartment into, Lord willing, our house. Uh, and so that week will be full of moving and packing, and I will still be giving the message that following Sunday, both Sunday school here and evening service. So prayer for me would be appreciated as I'm trying to make sure I do the due diligence that the, the word of God deserves to give an accurate and true message to you while all of that stuff is going on. But we are going to start in Habakkuk 1, and I want to give you some background on the book of Habakkuk and on the person Habakkuk. They share the same name. Habakkuk, the book, is unique among the prophetic books because the prophecies in it aren't spoken to a nation. When you read the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or you read the book of Jonah or Amos, the message, no matter how short or how long it is, is addressed to somebody. Israel, Judah, Assyria, Babylon. In the book of Habakkuk, that's not the case. Habakkuk 1 and 2, the first two chapters, they're a question and answer session between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk 3 is a beautiful psalm given by Habakkuk as his faith has grown. Even though the message concerns the nation of Judah, it's not actually given to Judah. Habakkuk doesn't stand up and preach to Judah. Habakkuk talks to God, and it's recorded, and the message is revolving around Judah. Now, as for Habakkuk the person, it's hard to date exactly where he shows up because the book itself has so little to tell us. But our best guess is that he's sometime between 625 and 605 BC. To give you some familiar figures and uh, events that are going on, uh, that would make him most likely a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. And that would also make him a contemporary most likely of the prophet, prophets Ezekiel and Daniel and Zephaniah. We also know that he either prophesied under King Josiah or King Jehoiakim. Uh, king Josiah is the last good king of Judah. King Jehoiakim, his son, is the next king, and he begins the death spiral downwards to where Babylon comes and destroys Judah in 586 BC. But what's important 
is that Habakkuk starts his preaching after King Manasseh. King Manasseh was King Josiah's grandfather, and he is one of the most important kings in Judah's history because he was so wicked and he was so evil that God had enough. And he made it very, very clear at the time that no matter what happens, Judah is going to be destroyed because it is so wicked. And even though his grandson Josiah did his best to reform the nation and to lead the nation back to the Lord, it wasn't enough because God had already promised destruction for Judah. Habakkuk also ministers during a time of great wickedness in Judah. Uh, As we're going to see in his opening complaint, Habakkuk is one of the few righteous left in a very, very wicked nation. He also ministers during a time of great political upheaval. Up until the point of uh, Habakkuk, top dog in the region is the Assyrian Empire. Uh, If you remember with King Hezekiah, it's it's Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire that comes knocking on the door, taunting his god, taunting his army, saying that they're going to destroy Jerusalem, they're going to capture Judah. They don't, but they do stick around, demanding tribute, uh, threatening them, invading them in little skirmishes here and there. That political power that's just been strong-arming Judah is starting to lose to the new kid on the block. And that is the Babylonian Empire. See, in 625 BC, a guy by the name of Nabopolassar becomes king of the Chaldeans, and he becomes king of the then, or what would become the Babylonian Empire. And he has a son, and you know him far better than you know Nabopolassar because his son's name is King Nebuchadnezzar. Now at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar is not king, he's just the commander of the armies. But from 625 to 612, Babylon beats up Assyria, and eventually in 612, they destroy the city of Nineveh, like Nahum prophesied. So what that means for Judah, as a a little nation kind of far away from Assyria and Babylon, is that the guy that's been bullying them and in oppressing them is going to be gone which means that this is a time for judah to gain a lot of power It is a time for judah to gain a lot of independence it is a time for judah to gain a lot of influence those thoughts are probably in the back of a lot of people's minds in fact it would not be surprising if at the same time habakkuk is having this conversation with god he is hearing false prophets constantly call out peace peace or prosperity prosperity for judah But as we're going to see, Habakkuk's message from God, because Habakkuk is the real prophet, is not a message of peace, peace. It is not a message of prosperity. And there are two central questions to Habakkuk, and they both revolve around the problem of evil. The first question is a little bit more general than the second. The first is, why does God allow evil to go unpunished? That is what we are going to see in the opening complaint of Habakkuk in great detail. Why does a holy God let evil just go? The second question, and this is more specific to the context of Habakkuk's time, is how can God allow wicked Babylon to punish a nation that is more righteous than themselves? Both revolving around the concept of evil. Now, what we're going to see through this is that though God is long-suffering, He is not ever suffering. God has a very, very long amount of patience, but he does not have an infinite amount of patience. 
And God is not blind to evil either. He is going to judge evil in due time. So even though God is long-suffering, a more updated version of that word would be even though God is patient, he is not ever suffering, nor is he blind to evil. He will judge evil in due time. So we're going to start in Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. We're going to pause right there. Verse 1 gives us two very important pieces of information. First is this word that my translation has as oracle. If you have the King James, you have a different word there. It's the word burden. This word is used elsewhere among the prophets. Uh, two examples. Isaiah receives an oracle concerning Babylon and Philistia and Moab. And Nahum receives an oracle concerning uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. An oracle or this burden is a prophetic message, but it has one key quality. It is a prophetic message of doom. It is a prophetic message of destruction. It is not a message that God is going to save you or rebuild you. It is a message that God is going to destroy you. That is why it's called a burden. The second important thing from verse 1 is who it's coming from. Habakkuk the prophet. Which means that this has the divine stamp of approval. This is a message from God. This is an oracle of doom coming directly from the Lord. So now, verses 2 to 4, this is how the book opens up with the prophet asking God a question. The prophet is complaining. Verse 2, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention Arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk opens up his book and his complaint with a very common question. How long? How long will I cry for help and you, God, will not hear? And as the English Standard Version puts the second part of that verse, how long will I cry out violence and you will not save? Habakkuk is one of the righteous few surrounded by an increasingly wicked nation. And his question to God is, when are you going to do something about this? How long before you act? How long before you do something about this wickedness? Because you can see what Habakkuk is surrounded by. He uses a ton of different words to describe it. Violence, iniquity, or your translation may have evil deeds, wickedness, destruction, strife, contention, lawlessness, injustice. Habakkuk is witnessing evil infect every area of life in Judah. Personal life, interpersonal life, all the way up to the governments, all the way up to the courts, so that there is no justice. And it's getting worse. Because evil is just going unchecked, because God is not punishing evil whatsoever, seemingly to Habakkuk, it is encouraging people to just do more evil, to just get worse. So Habakkuk's question, how long? This is the core problem for Habakkuk. 
Why does God allow evil to go unpunished? Why do these evil, wicked people get to be alive? Why do they get to live long and happy lives? Why does God allow people to get away with so much sin from the human perspective? Habakkuk is surrounded by never-ending sin, and as his complaint tells us, apparently God's not doing anything at least from Habakkuk's perspective. Now, as a side note, I do want to make mention that when we're the ones in sin and struggling with sin, we tend to want God to be ever patient with us. Uh, We like when God is patient with us. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, When other people are in sin, we want God to drop the hammer as fast as possible. Uh, We like God's patient when it's for us, and we don't like it when it's for other people. We want the God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger for ourselves, as Exodus 34, verse 6 puts it. But when it comes to people we don't necessarily like, then we want the God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, as Exodus 34, verse 7 puts it. And sometimes we forget why God is patient, why God is slow in judging evil. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So when we get impatient with God, much like Habakkuk is feeling, sometimes we forget that God isn't wiping them out because he's still giving them a chance. He's still giving them a chance to repent. He's still giving them a chance to Turn it around. Now, before we get to God's response to the prophet's first complaint, I do want to take us back to verse 2 and to this opening question of how long. Because this implies something else. This implies that this is not the first time Habakkuk has prayed about the evil that surrounds him. In fact, it implies that Habakkuk has been constantly praying about this. How long do I have to pray for this? Habakkuk, even though he hasn't had his prayer answered, has been diligently calling out to God in prayer. He is still faithfully calling out to God in prayer. He is still waiting for the Lord. And in current circumstances, if you've looked around at how America is going, uh, it can be very easy to feel the same way as Habakkuk. How long? When are you going to do something? about this nation. I keep praying for this nation and God doesn't seem to be answering. Now Habakkuk's prayer is answered. His waiting is rewarded, but he's not ready for the answer. And I get the feeling that for those of us who have been praying for God to do something in this nation, uh, we're going to get an answer very, very similar to what Habakkuk gets for Judah. And it's probably not the answer you want to hear, and it may not be the answer you're ready for, because Habakkuk certainly is not ready for God's answer. But the prophet ends his complaint in verse 4, and then in verse 5, God responds. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded 
and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So God opens up his reply by grabbing our attention and definitely by grabbing Habakkuk's attention. Look among the nations. Observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am going to do something in your days, Habakkuk. What Habakkuk didn't realize is that God is actively answering Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk just can't see it. The impatience that we often feel with God can be very, very similar to what Habakkuk is feeling because we just don't see it. And especially in a day and age of two-day shipping, uh, it can get really, really easy to get impatient with God very, very fast because we are used to instant gratification. We are used to needing something or wanting something and getting it within 48 hours. And then we pray about it to God and we don't hear anything. No representative calls us up and follows up with us and asks us how the call was or anything like that. It's just silence. And then the next day it's silence. And the next day it's silence because God is working and we may just not be realizing it. To give you an example of God's timetable, Habakkuk is asking when God is going to judge and punish the evil in Judah. Babylon starts its rise to power in 625 BC, and Judah isn't finally defeated and destroyed by the Babylonians until 586 BC. That's 39 years. That's how long it takes for God's plan to work out and to fully answer Habakkuk's question of how long before you finally punish this nation. Now, what is God's plan here? What has God been doing already without Habakkuk realizing? Well, it's very simple. He's raising up the Chaldeans. Who Habakkuk is familiar with. Now, that word Chaldeans, you may not be as familiar with it as with, say, the Babylonians. You can interchange them. Technically, there's a difference. Uh, the Chaldeans are a subgroup within the Babylonian Empire. They would be the leaders. Uh, they would be the people in charge, but they lead the Babylonian Empire. It would be like saying, it's very similar to Pennsylvanians are a subgroup of Americans. Chaldeans are a subgroup of Babylonians. So when you see the word Chaldeans, you can use the word Babylonians there. So God is going to raise up the Babylonian Empire. Well, what are they like? Are they nice? As God puts it, they are fierce, impetuous people who take what is not theirs. Verse 6. This word fierce is translated in other versions as bitter or cruel. This word impetuous means hasty or greedy. They are feared and dreaded. They only recognize their own authority for right and wrong, according to verse 7. And this phrase, feared and dreaded, is translated in other versions as they are notorious for their cruelty. They are frightening and terrifying. Verse 8, they are fast, keen, and hungry to devour. Verse 9, they come for violence, and they enslave those they defeat. 
The New Living Translation puts it as, on they come all bent on violence. That is one of their goals, is just to be violent. The New English Translation says that they take prisoners as easily as one scoops up sand. They mock at all other authority and they capture fortresses. Verse 10. This is the tool that God has decided to use to answer Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk wanted the evil around him dealt with, and God will deal with the evil of Judah. And in fact, God has already set it in motion because at, most likely at the point of time when Habakkuk's alive, Babylon's already defeating Assyria. Babylon is already rising to power. And Babylon will eventually come knocking on the door. Habakkuk is alive when Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, is destroyed by the Babylonians. That constant threat to Judah is going to be removed forever by Babylon. So the Babylonian army is going to come and punish Judah for her sins. It is an army that is fast. It is an army that is strong. It is an army that is violent. And they are interested in devouring and enslaving and conquering. That is the tool that God is going to use to punish Judah. But notice two very important things from verse 11. Verse 11 is kind of the silver lining. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. First, God makes it clear that this is going to be a temporary judgment. God is not going to wipe out his people. He made a promise. He's going to keep it. As bad as the Babylonian wars are going to be with Judah, and you can read there are three different chapters in the Bible that all deal with the same event, the destruction of Jerusalem, as horrible as that is. And you can also read the book of Lamentations to see how Jeremiah felt about it and what he had to witness. It will pass on. As terrible as that judgment is going to be, it will be temporary. And as terrible as the judgment on Judah is going to be, Babylon is not going to get off scot-free. Babylon is also going to be judged for their pride, for their idolatry. Even if in the short term they have success because they are being used by God, it will not last. One day, Babylon will be held accountable for their rampant offenses and their rampant sins, as will every single person who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They will stand before the throne of God and they will be judged according to their deeds. And that is the most terrifying way to be judged in front of God is based on your works. Because your works, even your really, really good works, are filthy rags. And they will be judged. And they will be judged for eternity in the lake of fire. God will get to judging all evil in due time. Now, this answer is not what Habakkuk is expecting at all. Uh, he, he really does not know how to deal with this. Verses 12 to 17, you can, you can the, the confusion for Habakkuk, the, the inner mental struggle for Habakkuk is blatantly obvious as we read through verses 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk is struggling to wrap his head around this answer. The everlasting one, the holy one, the rock of Israel has chosen the Babylonians, has chosen the Chaldeans, and not just chosen them. The, the words that Habakkuk uses here, you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge and you, O rock, have established them to correct in verse 12. Both of those words mean the same thing. It is literally to assign someone a job, to assign someone a duty or a responsibility. And that job is to judge and that job is to correct. God has literally given the Babylonians the job of punishing. And Habakkuk asks three rapid fire why questions in two verses as he's trying to grapple with this. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Part of Habakkuk's confusion here is that his theology is correct. Habakkuk knows that God is the everlasting one. Habakkuk knows that God is holy, that he is separate from sin, that he cannot sin. Habakkuk knows that God is pure. He cannot approve of evil because God is morally and ethically and ceremonially clean. He knows that God is the rock of Israel. His theology is great. And that is what's leading to his confusion because the God that he knows as holy and pure is using the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are neither holy nor are they pure. Yes, Judah deserves punishment for their wickedness, but Babylon is more wicked. And to Habakkuk's credit, technically he's right. From Habakkuk's point of view, Habakkuk is one of the, the remnant few that are faithful. And as you read through the Old Testament, you will always see that God has left himself a remnant of the faithful. Uh, I think back to Elijah after he's done with the prophets of Baal. He's threatened by Queen Jezebel. He runs into the desert or he runs into the wilderness. He gets stopped by God and God asks, hey, Elijah, what are you doing out here? And Elijah, in part of his response, says, I'm the only one left, Lord. I'm the only one left that's faithful to you. And God, as part of his response, basically says, no, you're not. Uh, I have 7,000 other who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. God always leaves himself a remnant, and Habakkuk is one of those people at this time, no matter how small that remnant is. So if you were to look at Judah's wickedness kind of on a sliding scale, you know, Judah might be 98% wicked, but they're 2% faithful. When you look at Babylon, there is no faithful in Babylon. Uh, they are 100% wicked. 
So Habakkuk's right. Babylon is more wicked, yet God is using wicked Babylon to punish wicked Judah, even though Judah is still technically more righteous. And as God's tool, Babylon is going to gain a lot. Babylon is going to gain wealth. Babylon is going to gain land. Babylon is going to gain labor in the form of slaves. Babylon is going to gain prestige. Babylon is going to gain power, as verses 15 and 16 put it. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Their catch is large and their food is plentiful. So from Habakkuk's human perspective, Babylon is winning. Babylon is being blessed, even though they're more wicked. From Habakkuk's limited human perspective, that's how it's playing out. And within Habakkuk's lifetime, he's going to see that come to fruition because Babylon will become the superpower of the region. So why is God using the Babylonians for judgment and correction? Why does a holy God choose to use evil people? And the answer to that question is frankly because he doesn't have anybody else to use. And if when you think of evil people, you thought that didn't include you, uh, this is a humility check for you. Because God doesn't use you because you've earned it. God uses you because he is gracious and loving and kind. God uses you because he wants to use you and it is a way that he can show his love and grace and mercy to you. He doesn't use you because you've earned it. So when we ask the question, why does God use evil people? Frankly, God doesn't have another option. He's only got evil people to use. So Habakkuk is confused. His theology is right, but the answer he received from God is, does not line up with that theology at all. And I want to read Habakkuk 2 verse 1 because this is technically where Habakkuk's second address ends. Chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Habakkuk ends his second complaint with, I will stand and wait for the Lord's reply. If you have the New English translation, uh, which is a translation I am growing to love more and more, it says, how I should answer when he counters my argument. Habakkuk knows that he's probably stepped over the line in questioning God's holiness and God's justice, and he knows he's going to get an answer back. So his decision is to stand and wait for that answer. Like a good guard... Like a good watchman, I'm going to stand on the rampart. I'm going to stand on the watchtower and see what his reply will be. Notice that even though the confusion is running rampant in verses 12 to 17, he is still faithfully waiting on the Lord's reply. And here I want to flip to the passage that we read as a congregation, Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Because I think that passage, Habakkuk, is a prime example of what that passage looks like. So Habakkuk, Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Habakkuk is a prime example of this, and though we don't see it, we will. When we get to Habakkuk 3, as Habakkuk, in waiting for the Lord, gains new strength in his faith. But many people, when they get weary, do not wait for the Lord. They pray and they pray and they pray and they pray, and God never answers, or worse, things go the opposite of what they wanted. The marriage falls apart, the child dies, the house is lost, some other horrible situation occurs, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And they think, well, God isn't behaving the way that I want him to, so I quit. As though somehow they can stand in judgment of the Lord and of his timing and of his plan. Like Habakkuk, they question God. But unlike Habakkuk, they don't wait for the Lord. They don't gain that new strength. They don't mount up on wings like eagles. And for those of you that are still faithfully attending church and are still faithful in your walk with the Lord, who have gone through those horrible things, you can speak to firsthand experience of how it has grown your faith because you have decided to wait for the Lord. But there are many who don't. They don't trust in the everlasting, all-knowing God, the creator of the ends of the earth, as Isaiah puts it. They don't trust the God whose understanding is immeasurable. They don't trust the God whose understanding is so incomparable to ours, it's not even funny. As Isaiah explains in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. See, Habakkuk doesn't just represent himself in the book of Habakkuk. And before I continue on that thought, let me clarify. I am in no ways trying to allegorize or mysticize the person Habakkuk. He was a real person who was a real prophet, who lived at a real time, who had real concerns, had a real prayer, had a real conversation with God, had a real growth in his faith, and wrote a real book. Okay? So I just want to make that clear. By no means am I saying that Habakkuk is some kind of symbol or emblem and he wasn't a real person. He was a very real person. Everything we're going to read in the book of Habakkuk actually happened. However, he is also a representative. He, as the spokesman of the Lord, represents the faithful, who are surrounded by constant wickedness. He represents the faithful of his day, and he represents the faithful to this day, who are living in a world surrounded by sin and are trying to figure out why a holy God doesn't just get to it and doesn't just punish it. Or when they see God work out his plan, they go, wait, 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 God, that's not how you should do that. You should do it this way. This way is better. That is who Habakkuk represents. The faithful remnant God always leaves for himself. And our representative, O faithful, is struggling. He is confused, but he does not give up on the Lord. He will wait for the Lord's answer. 
And as we will see in chapter 3, Habakkuk, both the person and our representative, gains new strength as we get to one of the most beautiful psalms recorded in all of the Bible. But that will be for next week and the week after. So, dear Christian, though God is long-suffering, he is not ever suffering, nor is he blind to evil. He will judge evil in due time. That is something you can trust. That is something you can hope in. That is something that can be a comfort. As you pray against the evil and the wickedness in your nation, we often want God to be patient with us, and we want him to supply two-day shipping of judgment to others. We want to enjoy God's patience, but we don't really want God to be patient with others sometimes. And when God doesn't answer our questions, doesn't answer our prayers right off the bat, our impatience can grow. And in a world of instant access, a God whose plans might take 39 years seems unbearable to us. That is such a long time to us. And much like Habakkuk, Christians in America today can be asking, how long? How long, Lord, before you do something about the evil? But we can rest knowing that even if we can't see it, much like Habakkuk, the Lord will judge all evil, both individually and nationally. The Lord will bring evil to judgment one day, and it will be a perfect, total judgment of sin. And so we don't need to doubt God's justice. We don't need to doubt God's holiness. What we need to do is trust in his timing and as the faithful to wait on the Lord so that our faith grows when we see him answer. Whether that's today, tomorrow, next year, next decade, next 30 years, next 50 years, whenever the Lord's plan works out, we as the faithful are called to wait on the Lord that our faith may grow and to trust that he will judge evil. And one day, when all the dead stand before the throne of God, that will be the final time God perfectly and totally judges all evil for all time. And that is something that we can trust in and we can hope in as the righteous surrounded by the wickedness that we see today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is holy, that you are a God who is just, and that you have books like Habakkuk in your word for us. I thank you that in your word you contain books that question what is going on. We think of Habakkuk, we think of Job as they ask you questions, trying to learn, trying to understand. And I thank you that we have your reply and that we can see your faithfulness. That even if we can't see it, you are working behind the scenes. You are actively answering prayers, even if it isn't instant, even if it isn't today. I pray that, like Habakkuk will be at the end of this book, our faith will grow because we decided to wait on you. Give us the patience we need to wait on your answer, to wait on your timing, to trust that you are a God who knows all, who is all-powerful, who has a plan and is working all things out for our good. Let that be a comfort to us. Let that be an encouragement to us, especially as we go through the really hard times and as we see the rampant evil get worse. 
Help us to trust that we have a God who will judge completely and totally all evil, and we can trust you to do that. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.